Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of you here today. You know, theologians for thousands of years have said that we are uh, not one just unit, but we are divided into potentially three different parts of who we are. That there is the mind or the things that we know, things that we believe to be true, and I will uh, say that this is the head. Uh, secondly, there's the emotion or what we feel. I will call it the heart. And in the West, this is probably the thing that we think is the most important. Uh, that in our culture today, uh, it is stressed that we need to be true to our hearts. That what we do ought to reflect how we feel. And this is the consistent kind of clamor of our culture and so our culture tells us that what we feel uh, should dictate what we do and the life that we live for example so if you are married and you no longer feel love toward your spouse but you feel love toward another person who's not your spouse a lot of secularists would say you need to be true to that feeling and leave your spouse and and follow after that love. The third part of who we are is our will. It's what we do. I will call it the hand. It's our actions. In the East, uh, during culture, this is probably the one that we stress the most. That it is, uh, in the Eastern Confucianistic culture, it is really unimportant how we feel. What is important is what we do. And so we have uh, grown up, a lot of us, in a very dutiful a disciplined culture where we have learned to set aside how we feel as long as we are doing what is expected of us. So the head, the heart, and the hand is what we call it. Now, our goal in life is oftentimes to be aligned in all three of these things, that we want all, things, all three of these things to, to sync with one another. And if you are a non-Christian, um, it wouldn't be that hard to, to try to sync all three together, um, that you are true to who you are, that your worldview, what you think is to be right, is consist consistent with what you feel uh, you want to do, and you live according to that. So a uh, non-Christian, if they believe that having sex outside of marriage is okay, um, they will do so regardless of whether they are married or not, and they, they will act according to that. That cheating on taxes, hating uh, an enemy, taking vengeance, whatever it may be, that they, are, uh, they can live in alignment with one another. And in fact, non-Christians oftentimes live at greater peace than Christians because they can live according to their worldview, and it's okay. And although their imago Dei conscience will bother them a bit, they can choose to harden their heart, and the scripture calls it a callousing of the heart. Now, as Christians, this is our goal, and I, I believe we have a slide for that, that we believe that there is a will of God, an expressed will of God in the scripture, and oftentimes the, uh, the will of God according to what the Spirit uh, imparts in our hearts. And so our goal as Christians is to live according or, or sync all three together according to the will of God, that we want our minds to be in alignment with 
the will of God, that we want to believe in, in our heads the things that God has told us. This is what the world is. This is who you are. This is what my desire for you is. And as Christians, we uh, study the word of God. We hear the word of God. We memorize the word of God so that we can be convinced mentally. Uh, and that, and it's, not the, it's not the world of worldview, but God's worldview that uh, changes our minds. And as Christians, we want our hearts to follow that. That we not only want to mentally believe those things, but we want to heartfully believe those things. That it becomes, a, a, that our hearts are transformed. And finally, that we want to live in obedience to that. And so uh, our, our life reflects a life of obedience. And so this is perfect alignment. Now, I, I want to s- stop here and stay, you know, pause here and say that there's not one single person in this room, including me, who is in perfect alignment. And the scripture talks about how until glorification, until we are reunited with Christ, that as long as we are in our earthly bodies, that we will be misaligned, that we will not fully know and be convinced of of, uh, God's truth, that we will not fully feel what God wants us to feel, and we will not completely obey Uh, everything that God wants us to do, that we live in this great tension of already but not yet. We live in a life of misalignment. Now, uh, we're in this series uh, in the book of Jonah, and I love the book of Jonah because it's so uh, applicable to us. Tim Keller calls him the prodigal prophet. What I would, if I had to give him a different title, he would be the misaligned prophet, the misaligned prophet, because Jonah is a great example of someone who has a misalignment between what he knows, what he feels, and what he does. And like a lot of us in this room, I am here to say that the greatest disconnect in Jonah's life is what he feels. And um, in chapter 1, This is what Jonah looked like, if I can have the next slide. That from the beginning, it said that Jonah knew what the expressed will of God was, to arise and go and preach to the Ninevites. That we uh, think that Jonah had an intimate relationship with God. He regularly communed with God. He was in the presence of God. He knew exactly what God's expressed will for his life was. And from the beginning until the end, he never denies that. He never tries to rationalize it. He knows exactly what God wants from him. He knows the will of God. He's a prophet, after all. He's like a pastor. He's a spokesperson for God. What was troubling for Jonah was that his heart was not aligned to it. That he didn't want to do the will of God in his life. And in chapter 2, there is a turning point where he looks back to the temple. He longs for the presence of God again. But there is still a misalignment in that he still does not want to go to the Assyrians whom he disliked. And in chapter 1, it said that he arose, and instead of going to Nineveh, he fled and went to Tarshish, if you remember. So his heart caused him to um, direct his hands to run away and disobey, and this is a picture of a rebellious Christian, someone who knows the will of God, but feels and does something opposite. It's, it's a husband 
who knows that he needs to be faithful to his wife, but feels something different and chooses to do something different. It's someone who knows that he should forgive, but does not want to forgive because of the pain that has been accumulated and chooses not to forgive. It is someone who uh, knows that she needs to to give or to serve, but she chooses uh, not to because she does not want to, okay? Now, we turn to chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, would you turn your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 3? And you can already tell how this is so applicable to you because Jonah is a reflection, uh, really, uh, to a lot of us. If you read Jonah chapter 3 in isolation, we would uh, get the impression that there is uh, an alignment between his head, his heart, and his hands. And I'm going to read uh, from the ESV version. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look up on the screen, and, we will, uh, and I will read it for us. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And if we can all read uh, Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 Together with one voice, if you don't have it, you can look up on the screen. Let's read. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Lord, we come before you um, under the authority of Scripture, knowing that your actions and your words, they mean something to us. And we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate these words Uh, pierce our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to divide this um, uh, section up into two, the second call and the second chance. And while I do so, I'm going to ask three questions. First of all, the second call. The second call. You know, um, for the longest time, I've oversimplified chapter three, at the beginning at least. Uh, As you recall, Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish, and at the end of chapter two, it said that he, uh, the great fish vomited him up onto dry land, I used to think that the, uh, the great fish vomited Jonah up onto the shore of Nineveh. And so that when uh, he got up and the Ninevites saw him uh, at the beachside, go, oh my goodness, who is this person? He, it's, it's a miracle that the, the fish vomited him up. His skin was bleached white from the acid of the fish. And uh, because it was such a miraculous thing that they listened to his preaching. 
Now, uh, let me explain to you from geography why this is uh, just a veggie tale kind of a scenario and not really true, okay? If you look at the, the map on the screen, the middle marker is Joppa. That's where Jonah started. And God told him to go to Nineveh, which is on, your, on the right. You see that? Uh, but Jonah uh, turned and went the other way to the supposed uh, Tarshish, which is on the left. And he took a ship to go there. And you can tell that Tarshish is most likely a port city. And that if the fish had vomited up on the shores of Tarshish, that may make sense. But the call was for him to go to Nineveh. Now, if you look at the map of Nineveh, it is not a port city. If the great fish had swum around in the Mediterranean Sea and had vomited him out, the closest shoreline that he would be, uh, you know, uh, vomited onto is actually near Joppa again, right? So Jonah was not discarded onto the beach side of Nineveh. He somewhat ended up where he began. Now, this is important. Because in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's a parallel between this and chapter 1, the first calling. Now, uh, uh, you know, Jonah, uh, he had repented in some ways in chapter 2, and when he had been uh, vomited out from the great fish, we were under the impression that immediately he got up and went to Nineveh. But the Lord had to come to Jonah a second time and tell him, arise. Which tells me that Jonah was sitting again. That he was inactive. He was not actively in obedience to God's first call. We don't know how long he had been inactive for after the, the great fish incident. And perhaps Jonah felt like, you know, I disobeyed the Lord the first time. Maybe I am disqualified now. Perhaps there was a wishful thinking in Jonah that perhaps God forgot about the call. And I can kind of just quietly slide into the background but the Lord did not forget, and he called him a second time. And unlike the first time, it says in verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. What is different in chapter 3 is that in chapter 1, Jonah was obedient not to the word of the Lord, but his own heart or his own emotion or how he felt. What is different is this, that though in chapter 1 and chapter 3, Jonah clearly knew the will of God, but this time around, he obeyed the will of God. He goes to the great city of Nineveh that is exceedingly great, um, a three days walk. We are told in chapter 4 that the population was about 120,000, and in that particular era, 120,000 population city is a huge city. We understand it as being a three-day walk um, around the district or like the county of Nineveh, um, which is, would be about 60 miles in circumference, according to one historian. Jonah goes and preaches uh, to the city, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
What has changed now is this, that though he knew uh, the will of God in chapter 1 and chapter 3, in chapter 3, there is an alignment to his hands. So at least his head and his hands are aligned. Now, after having read chapter 2, uh, we think there is a, uh, a repentance, and there is. And after having read, read chapter 3, there is an obedience, and there is. Some of us might be under the impression there is also an alignment with his heart. That he not only knew the will of God, not only did he do the will of God, but he felt the will of God. Emotion, his emotion was aligned. But if we read ahead to chapter 4, we discovered that there was not. And he didn't want to do what God had called him to do. And uh, he didn't want to do what he was actually doing, which was preaching to the Ninevites. This, was a, this is a strange thing to me. Now, uh, last week, we announced our step trips, to, uh, a team to Southeast Asia and a team to um, East Asia. And our, our uh, host today announced a trip to Honduras. And um, last week also, we had a testimony from a young man who spent a year in East Asia. And we um, have families who um, have spent time overseas and are spending time overseas. And we think that those things are admirable, and our mission board oftentimes interviews people, not only those whom we send or those, but uh, other missionaries who apply for financial support at our church. Imagine a hypothetical interview with a candidate that goes something like this. So the mission board asks this candidate, so you believe you're called to go to Assyria as a missionary? Candidate, yes, I do. Mission board, have you ever been to Assyria? Candidate, well, God called me to go there once, but I ended up not going. Mission board, what happened? Candidate, I took a ship and went the opposite way on purpose. Mission board, why? I don't like the Syrians, the candidate. Mission board, but you had a change of heart? Candidate, yes. Mission board, you mean that you like them now? Candidate, no. I'm just convinced that I need to go. I still don't like the Assyrians. Mission board, are you going to pretend you like them? Candidate, no. I'm going to go there and tell them that they deserve to go to hell. I hope they don't change their minds. Mission board, we don't understand. Why do you want to go to Assyria? Candidate, precisely, I don't want to go. I, I can't imagine a mission board approving such a candidate. Right? That would be highly irresponsible of them. This brings me to the first question that I have. And, and uh, I don't know if you've ever read... Jonah in this light, and perhaps it's reflective of sometimes the tension that you feel it. And the question is this, why does God call the unwilling? Why does God call the unwilling? You're giving away my answers. <laughs> why does God call someone whose heart is not aligned with the will of God? You know, uh, if you think about it, God could have called someone who had not failed, who had not disobeyed. God could have called someone who was less reluctant. God could have called someone who would be more receptive to God's will. But it baffles me that God still chose not only the first call, but through a second call to be persistent. 
uh, with Jonah. You know, someone can argue, well, perhaps it was because Jonah had an irreplaceable skill set. I doubt it. And even if he did, God could have raised someone else up for that exact same purpose, could he not? And even if, um, but the question is, why does God relentlessly call Jonah even after Jonah makes it abundantly clear to the Lord throughout the book, I don't want to be called, right? And this, and, and the answer to this question is, I don't know. I just don't know. All I know is this from the evidence that we see in Jonah is that God does not always call the most willing and God does not always give up on those who are unwilling. You get that? God does not always call the most willing, and God does not give up on the unwilling. You know, most of the times we are led to believe that uh, God uses the willing. And so, like in the book of Isaiah, um, after uh, Isaiah received the vision of the glory and the holiness of the Lord, uh, Isaiah uh, volunteers and says, here I am, send me. And that God responds and uses and calls those who are willing. And by and large, that might be the case. But why is it that when God called, Jonah said, I'm not willing. Send someone else. Send Joe if you have to. Send Mary. Don't send me. And there's Joe saying, I'm willing. I'm here I am. And God doesn't call Joe. God doesn't call Mary. But, but the Jonah who's hiding, saying, I hope he passes me by. I hope he doesn't notice me. God says, Jonah, not only once, but twice. He calls. It is a mystery to me why God chooses those who don't want to be called. And God, how sometimes bypasses those who actually do want to be called. A few weeks ago, I... Uh, kind of used the illustration of Jeremiah who felt the, the word of God burning inside of him, how when he was initially called that he felt like he was too young and, and God said, no, no, I'm going to empower you. And then there was this burning passion and calling in his heart. And we are led to maybe uh, naively think that Jeremiah was someone whose head, his heart, and his uh, hands were all aligned. But let me explain to you Jeremiah's life and ministry. He was called to preach against his country, and his calling was a horrible, horrible call. His calling wasn't to preach to his fellow countrymen, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He wasn't called to tell them uh, that they can live their best life now. But rather, in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, and this was from uh, after years and years of ministry, he, he reflects back on his ministry life. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. If I say I will not mention them or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, for I cannot. He confesses that there's this calling that God has given to him. He can't help but to preach. He's compelled by it. But, verse 10, 
For I hear many whispering terrorists on every side, denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close, what? Friends. Watching for my fall, perhaps he will be deceived and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. What uh, Jeremiah says is, after years and years of ministry, some of my best pastor friends are hoping that I will fail. Um, and it's hard. Let's denounce him. You would think that there has been an alignment after years of obedience that he would love ministry. He would love the people whom he's ministering to. This is his reflection of what he thinks about his life and his calling, verses 14 and 15. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Verse 18, why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Do you see what he thought of his life and his calling in the ministry. He said, I, I wish I wasn't born. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't like my life. Jeremiah is someone who knew the word of God and he did the word of God, but there was a disconnect in his heart. And that is what we see of Jonah in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He knows the word of God, the will of God. He does the will of God, but he is anguished by the will of God in his heart. Uh, let's continue for the second chance. What happens next is remarkable, and uh, we're not going to delve deeply into the psychology of the Assyrians, but we will understand what's going on. Uh, it says that... Um, the people believed, people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, mind you, that Jonah's message to the Ninevites weren't uh, like, uh, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There wasn't cool music and an invitation to an altar call. They weren't given like swag, t-shirts and keychains. They weren't given like snacks and say, go into the room and we have a gift item for you. Rather, I think he reflected the, the message that Nahum chapter 2 verse 13 had. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots and smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. I think he was preaching condemnation against them. But they believed. Verse 6, the word um, reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The people, there was a general revival, and the king eventually had a change of heart. He took off his royal robe and put on sackcloth, which is like a potato sack. He uh, sat in ashes, which is what someone who, would, um, in, who in mourning would do. He formalized this ad in verses 7 and 8. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and, be, 
and beasts be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There is a national revival. Now, some commentators believe that this may uh, partially be a result of some uh, natural phenomenon that happened during the, the, the time of Nineveh, a uh, famine, a plague, a flood, uh, a total eclipse in 763 B.C., one commentator, though, says that through, though generalities must always be used with caution, we may say that never again has the world seen quite anything like the result of Jonah's preaching in Nineveh. The people went from paganism to theism. They repented of their violence, cruelty, and ter terror, and they turned to the Lord and feared him. Now, I'm not sure if they did a complete turnaround, every single one, and they not only repented of their violence and uh, started trusting the Yahweh God, but I know that there's a revival. You know, for this message, I wanted to know uh, kind of what Google Maps says is the location of Nineveh. And so I Googled Nineveh, and it showed me a church nearby, the church of Nineveh. Uh, because there was a revival at that time, and the Christians from this era carried their spiritual legacy on to a church even now locally. It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do for them, and he did not do it. Theologians wonder if God can actually change his mind, if God is immutable, meaning God never changes, but God... Uh, can change his mind, uh, um, at least according to what we and, uh, uh, see, and God changes his mind and chooses to have mercy on them. Now, this brings me to my second question that's relevant to us. The first question is, uh, was, why does God call the unwilling? If people don't want to be called, why does God relentlessly chase after them and choose not to call those who are willing? Here's the second question. Why does God give success to the unwilling? Why does God give success or fruit to the unwilling? You know, we assume, and I think rightly so, that God uses those who are of clean heart, that God will give fruit to those who serve God with a glad and willing and cheerful heart. That, that the heart that is uh, joyful and pure are the ones that God uses. But Jonah's heart was exactly opposite that. And I believe the book of Jonah is a gift to all of us. I, I think the thing that many of the men and women in this room struggle with, and I know we struggle with all three, having our heads aligned with uh, the will of God, really believing that the truths of God are, are true. I, th I think a lot of us uh, struggle with our aligning our hands, being obedient to what we know is right. And those are both valid struggles. But in this room, I, I say that the thing that the vast majority of us struggle with the most um, in terms of those three is aligning our hearts to the will of God. Is when we don't want to obey and 
we still do. You know, there, there are days, there are days, isn't it, when you know that God wants you to love and respect your spouse, but you don't want to. But you still dutifully do. That, that you conclude that your kids are brats. <laughs> that you hate to say it, and this is a confession that all parents kind of make. Your kids are not here. You, you don't, there are days you don't like your kids. Right? Be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you just you don't like them. You can trade. You'd like to trade them in if possible. I mean, not always, but some days, right? But you're dutiful to them. That that your parents, you're you're grateful. But you get tired of them. Your in-laws certainly. That you get tired of doing the right things. That, that serving in the church is thankless, uh, being honest and having integrity, you wonder if it's worth it. What you and I struggle with more than aligning our heads and more uh, than aligning our hands is because you still do mo- those things most of the time. We're just dutiful, responsible people. We wrestle with our hearts. We still do the right thing, but we don't feel like it. And the question that is asked, that, that I ask is, why does God give success to the unwilling? We know that Jonah's obedience was an imperfect obedience. It was an unwilling obedience. It was a heartless obedience. But God still chooses to bless it and give it fruit. And this is an important observation. And if that's the case, the conclusion is this, that God uses imperfect obedience. That God can choose to take our oftentimes heartless, unwilling, imperfect, misaligned obedience and bear fruit from it. And I think that is great news. You know, in, in, our, in the West... We're so taught that we just need to follow our hearts. If you don't want to serve, don't serve. If you don't want to love those people, cut them out of your lives. If you don't like that spouse, just get a different one. Right? But there's still something to be said about obedience to the will of God. I want to make clear this. You know, it's not okay to leave our hearts broken or misaligned. But, listen carefully. It's never wrong to do the right thing. It's never wrong to do the will of God. It's wrong to disobey because our hearts are not there. But it's never wrong to obey and to do the will of God. Now, I'm going to conclude by asking a third question. Can we choose to obey with an unwilling heart? Uh, Can we continue to obey with an unwilling heart? Can we continue to obey with an unwilling heart? Because if Jonah was able to flourish with a heart that was misaligned and he bore so much fruit, and, you know, uh, sometimes I I, uh, compare and contrast the life of Jonah with the life of Noah. Noah, the poor guy. 
he preached for nearly 100 years, and the only people who came to his church was his family um, and his in-law and his son-in-laws. No one else came. No convert. And Noah was as faithful and righteous as can be. Jonah didn't want to go, preach condemnation, and he had a great revival. We, we could tend to believe that, that perhaps it's okay for us to have a misaligned heart, and it's okay. Um, let me throw up this last picture for us. This is what Jonah looked like. He knew the will of God, and he did the will of God, but his heart was still misaligned. Okay? And there's a tension there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I took my car in because I, I had to get my uh, tire worked on. And uh, the person who worked there looked at my four set of tires and says, I think you have an alignment issue. And if you understand cars, this is what it means. Your, the front wheels of your car has a natural propensity. And if it's perfectly aligned, it'll just point straight. So if you, if you leave your steering wheel just alone and you're driving on a flat road without any bends or anything like that, until, and if you, if you just kind of press, a, a perfectly aligned car will just continue to go straight. A misaligned car would do this. The tire has a propensity to go left or right by itself, although the steering wheel is, is, is straight. And so uh, a misaligned car will prone to wander left or to the right. And the driver, then what you have to do is if you're driving on the freeway or driving on a straight road, you'll have to kind of like keep turning almost. Yeah, so that the car will continue to go straight. What you're doing is you're taking this misaligned car and it, it, the car will think you're just turning the whole time. And what happens to the tires is that it will wear out wrongly. Yeah. That is the picture of a misaligned heart in our lives. If there's misalignment in our hearts, what will happen? Like the elder son in the prodigal son, uh, prodigal son story, that the older son continued to know right and did right, but there's an arrogance in his heart and resentment when God shows mercy to the younger son. And we're going to get a, uh, an answer, a partial answer next Sunday. But this is what I want to leave us with. All of us struggle with misalignment. None of us have hearts that are purely aligned with the will of God. None of us. Absolutely none of us. What I am grateful for is this. That the Lord, the merciful Lord, has a hand on the steering wheel. And he takes my imperfect obedience. He takes my misaligned heart. And he has grace on me. He says, Steve, although there are times you don't want to obey, although there are times you're doing reluctantly, I'm going to keep chasing after you. And I'm going to be gracious to you. And God's going to bear fruit in me and in you.